Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast. I have to apologise uh, straight away because uh, Floki the Cocker Spaniel thought he would try and join in uh, in our interview and he was knocking, clanging, uh, he was growling at one point because I think someone tried to deliver something <laughs> and uh, he's now in his bed curled up because he's been told off but I think he's just doing what a Cocker Spaniel does apart from he has taken to eating uh, rugs like, you know, your front door mats. Um, he's now on number three. Well, he's killed two. He's killed two. You've this, had to buy two. Three, yeah, but he's also killed a rug um, as well. It's really odd that it only seems to be like carpet-based things <laughs> that that he uh, destroys. So, so if he, anyone has any uh, advice other than abandoning him on the, the side <laughs> of the road... Um, no, I'm only joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> Then, uh, get that, that, actually, I should I should just <laughs> add to that uh, the reason why that's actually quite a, f- uh, a funny but sad joke is that we have another dog in this household called Spartan. Yeah. Uh, Spartan is a four or five year old husky. It must be five now. Yeah. yeah. And poor Spartan was actually found on the side of the road by Daryl uh, yeah. when he used to work in Glasgow. You can give that the, uh, the you know what? Yeah, I mean, I mean that is the. That is the he was only what, 10 story. weeks old? Yeah, I mean, the vet thinks he was about 10 weeks old when I brought him in. And he was just left on the side of the road uh, on the Loch Lomond Road in Glasgow. Mm. And um, I took him in and uh, took him to the vet. And uh, they didn't, well, uh, you know, you do the normal report to the police. But I think it's a very, very common occurrence, especially around big cities, Glasgow, and probably Edinburgh as well, uh, for dogs to be left. I mean, you see it all the time. In fact, it was Dunfermline um, train station, I think it was, uh, that someone just tied up. This is a few months after we found Spartan. Someone just tied up their dog at the train station, at the railings, and just left it there. So it happens a lot. What they reckon might have happened with Spartan is that one of his uh, testicles hadn't dropped. Um, uh, So useless for breeding. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's why he had to get them chopped off. Yeah. Well, anyway, so so poor Spartan <laughs> is not so poor Spartan anymore because he has a freaking awesome life. He has one of the best <laughs> lives for a husky. husky. Yeah. Uh, and he is downstairs, but he is actually behaving unlike the cockspank He does actually behave yeah. very well. Yeah. Just not in the last couple yeah. of days. Uh, we have Phil Massaro on the podcast today. You heard from Phil a few months back uh, when we were in Iwa. We did a very short show with him. We were with uh, he was with us in Scotland uh, at an event a couple of weeks ago, which you're going to hear all about or hear a little bit about. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't have a chance during that event in Blair Athol to do any podcast because it was just rammed from first thing in the morning until the uh, last thing at night. But we did meet a lot of really interesting people, Phil being uh, one of them, who are going to be coming on the podcast. So you will be you'll be hearing the spoils of of all the interesting people. Plus the films, plus the pictures. So you will get the full experience, other than actually being there. Yeah, that's Uh, the best we can do. It's the best we can do. so we're, we're going to talk to Phil about a whole range of topics. There's a little bit of conservation at the start, although that wasn't our original intention. He's going to talk about uh, guns, big bore guns, big cartridges, and some of his hunting experiences from Mozambique uh, to Australia. And uh, we're also going to touch just a little bit on the the news that came out a few weeks ago about the banning of uh, and restrictions of grizzly bear hunting in B.C., we have 
competitions to tell you about before we get to all of that. Yeah. And and don't go anywhere. Don't skip ahead to the interview because we have a massive announcement in the next couple of minutes. Yeah, we do. So the first thing is we have a winner for the uh, which was from two weeks ago, which was the Surefire Ear Defenders and the Hornady Beer Mug. And I apologize right now for butchering your name. It's Welsh because you live in Wales, so I'm assuming it's a Welsh name. Llewellyn? Llewellyn Harrison? So congratulations. You've won. Please ping us a message. We'll get that stuff sent down to you. We had another competition from two weeks before, which was a picture competition. Uh, Daryl shortlisted them across social media. On Instagram um, and Facebook. Exactly. And it was up to all of our great listeners and the people who follow us on social media to decide who won. And the winner by quite a margin was uh, a young lad who unfortunately I don't actually know his name, but I know whose father is, so I'm going to tell you that soon. And he's standing there with a shotgun and two pheasants, one in each hand. And that won by miles. So congratulations, uh, Sean Porter. It's your young son. So Sean, you uh, are winning for your son. We've had this before where yeah, a father says, so you need to make sure that he gets it. It was a vintage Hornady sign, uh, a re- <laughs> re- reloading sign for a vintage Hornady sign. So congratulations. That's what you've won. Yep. And do we have another competition this week? Well, we do. So for this particular show, as always, uh, a new competition. You may have noticed that we, and this was this was Daryl's brainwave, off the back of people requesting um, some of our pictures for desktops for your your PC or your laptop. So we have put, uh, well, right now there's only one, but by the time the show goes out, there should be three desktop backgrounds downloadable off our website, um, thepacebrothers.com. So if you go on there and hit gallery, you will see uh, a drop-down that says download. And in there, you'll find some nice wallpapers to download. So the competition for this month requires you to take a picture of your computer with our background on it. Or a screenshot of your phone, or a if, screenshot. If, if it works on your phone. Yeah. And either tag us in it on, on Instagram, or comment underneath or the competition, email or email us. Uh, anyway, as long as we see it so that we can get everybody's name in a list. And then we'll just we'll just pick. Well, yeah, then it's going to be random after that. And you have a chance, uh, through that competition, to win a CZ polo shirt and a Hornady baseball cap. Not a bad little prize. Nope. So we'll stick those up on social media with the ways that you can enter. As always, please get downloading and please send us the pictures of the desktop. Yep. Uh, We have a few little announcements to make on the shop Uh, front. We are at the end of our stock. We have one mug left, or that might have gone. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, There's one mug left. One mug left. Uh, There is a handful of T-shirts left. Uh, No XLs, no larges. Please check on the website for the sizes that are available. Uh, Yeah, like Byron just said, we're we're now running out. Well, uh... Yeah, mediums and smalls. Medium and smalls. So, uh, but and fe- they're discounted. They're ten pounds right now. They are. But fear not, there are some even better designs coming out very yeah, soon. That's the reason why we're we've dropped the price. We don't have many left now. We're trying to. Uh, well, we want to kind of clear space because we we don't have a massive amount of space for all of the new stuff that's coming. Uh, so there's new designs coming, new mugs, car stickers. Uh, thermoses podcast mugs podcast mugs we're bringing out a lot more products with cool designs uh, and thank you over the last i think it was a year ago i think we we brought out the first lot of stuff requested by everyone uh people were asking for t-shirts and mugs and we did it and and true to your word 
people have been buying. People have been buying, and we now we've sold out. So uh, it's pretty amazing, and I yep. hope everyone enjoys the new collection of stuff. And we are going to bring some cool little products, um, unique little things that we use. Hopefully, it, but run up to Christmas. Yeah, that's um, the plan. Yeah, if we can find time. Yeah, but, uh, that is, that is the hope. So. Yes, and in case you didn't realize, the shop is also on the website I mentioned earlier, thepacebrothers.com. We are going to be in New Zealand next year in the first two weeks of June, well, maybe a week before because we might go and see our cousin, for a hunting trip uh, with Joseph Peter of Hard Yards Hunting. Uh, he has a lot of great pictures of really quite extreme terrain. It's making me slightly afraid already. <laughs> so go and check out um, go and check out him on Facebook and on Instagram. We are... I had the first conversation with him a few days ago about what the trip's going to look like. I think there's going to be a lot of walking, maybe five to ten days, walking a massive loop around and hunting as we go. It's going to be it's going to be epic. And as we get more details of what that trip's going to look like, we will tell all of our listeners. And of course, the intention with a trip and expedition like that is that we will be making a film off the back of it. Yeah. Um, and pictures. And, and pictures. So you will get to share some of the experience with us. I am very. Much, it's a long way away, but I know that the time's going to disappear. It's going to creep. And, uh, thank and we need to get training. <laughs> yeah, we do. And thanks to uh, our Australian listeners, because we've got a great Australian contingent of listeners. Yes, we do. Um, that I think we mentioned it last time. We got a few emails to come over to various different places in Australia to go and go and hunt. So we really do appreciate that, and we probably will be taking one of two of you up on. We're going to try offers yeah. because we need to stop um, somewhere uh, because I have done the journey to New Zealand and it's um, pretty miserable. It's pretty miserable. Well. You need to break it up. Um, so if we could find somewhere in Asia, that means we could break it up because the last time I went Kuala Lumpur, there's probably nothing to hunt in Kuala Lumpur uh, but uh, I stopped there and it made the pl- the flight very bearable when you break it up yeah, that way so going a bit back. Of even fishing fishing Actually, fishing or hunting fishing. in Asia we could do fishing so anybody got any recommendations or anybody live there who can point us in the right direction somewhere that would be a stopover from the UK to, to Australia. Australia so somewhere anywhere in there that is a a recognized route well by recognized route I mean like flights often stop in Kuala Lumpur or they stop in Qatar or they stop mm. in, in places like, like that which you can get back to the UK without costing another thousand pounds yeah. for um, I mean you could always just do a loop around the world go well, UK, UK, Australia America back to the UK yeah yeah we could do uh, I don't think we'll have or time go, or that. go north you could go like Fiji then Japan or we could just take a year out and drive around year, the world yeah, okay. uh, yeah no let, let, let's make it something that has the possibility of happening yeah. so somewhere between the UK and Australia let us know what you're thinking so that we can yeah stop any, any good suggestions would be good you know what the, the Middle East um, does actually have some bloody good hunting in it mm. and is actually a reasonable stop yeah well, we'll see what people come up yeah. with, and then uh, we don't have that many listeners out in the Middle East. No, we don't. So we, they're, they're we need all, to try um, change that. They're all, they're, all expats. They're all expats, or they um, are working out there, like mm. on a rotation. So we will see what happens. I'm very much looking forward to that, and we have some other trips coming up soon, but we can't tell you about them, I'm afraid. Uh, but we will uh, when we get back from them. However, we have one. Very, very big announcement. Uh, and as far as I know, this is going to be the first time it has ever been run in the UK. Uh, this happens a lot in the States, probably more than anywhere else in the world, uh, in America and Canada. Not really so big in Europe and certainly not in the UK. 
in conjunction with the Northern Shooting Show, uh, which is um, next year, starting next year, we are going to be brought up the dates. The I, dates are online. <laughs> the dates are online. That's yeah. why I was hesitating yeah. there. I can't remember the dates. We, um, we will trust me. We're going to tell you a lot about it in the coming yeah. weeks. <laughs> we're probably going to be talking about it every yeah. second podcast. Uh, we are going to be running the UK's first hunting film festival. Uh, it is called the DNA Hunting Film Festival. DNA as in it's in us, our DNA, uh, standing for Discover New Adventure. So the Discover New Adventure DNA Hunting Film Festival. You, If you follow us on, on social media or the Northern Shooting Show, you will have seen a teaser go out a couple of days uh, before this podcast um, that just showed DNA, the DNA Hunting Film Festival logo. And as this podcast goes out, we'll be putting all the stuff on it on social media. So the deal with this is we want to encourage people to to make film, but make film that tells stories. We're going to have a whole um, list of list of criteria and what we're really looking for. But the the core of it is going to be stories. Yes, we want things to look nice. We want people to take the time to make things, you know, try and make it look cinematic. But we don't want to exclude people by kit. Yeah. If you can tell a great story, do not worry how you've managed to capture it. I've seen some incredible things, admittedly done by very good um, videographers, done on an iPhone Mm -hmm. because they've taken the time to plan shots and it's incredible what they've been able to do, but they have edited it. That's that's being smart. That's That's being very smart. So it really is, with the way technology is now, open to everybody. There's going to be two categories. There's going to be an amateur category and a professional category. We will define these, but basically, amateur, you can't do any paid work for videography. Uh, and for the, for the professionals, if you do any paid work, you can enter that. The prizes are quite... We're, we're entering a lot of films in the amateur um, category ourselves. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm joking. We are running it. We will not be entering any films of our own. No, uh, we won't. Maybe one of ours will show, but um, it will not be entered. No. Uh, I don't think that would be fair considering that we're judging it. No, exactly. <laughs> well, we'll be part, we won't be the only people no, judging we will have not to say. Be. We're going to put together um, a great panel who haven't decided yet and let everybody know. So we'll, we'll have the, the cinematic... I, in a way, yeah. um, cover the, the film side of things so we can critique uh, the way the film is made. And uh, but well, we're gonna ha- We know enough people across the industry, um, yeah. well-known people, that we, I'm sure we'll be able to get them on board to help judge. The, the prize that we've managed to sort, thanks to, uh, to Robert at um, Blaza Sporting down in, uh, well, based, based down south, is... A sour rifle and Minox binoculars. So, for the professional category, you will have the chance to win a sour rifle. The winner of that whole category will win a sour rifle, and we will tell you which one uh, very soon. There will be other prizes for uh, runners-up and yes, and a short-listed. other shortlisted uh, films as well. So, it, most people will probably end up getting something. I yes, imagine. I would hope so. Yeah, yeah, something. Uh, and sorry, I should just say and. Yeah. Minox binoculars yeah. is what you'll win uh, in the amateur. In the amateur, yeah. Uh, and on top of that, as well as winning your film, if you win, will be shown on the big screen, which I've just been told is even bigger. The screen is even bigger than it was <laughs> Don't last know how year. How that's possible? Uh, in the very centre, main hall of the Northern Shooting Show on both days, 
That's pretty incredible. Oh, uh, uh, bo- both films, so the amateur and yep, uh, the both films will be uh, shown, and uh, there will be a prize presentation at the Northern Shooting Show. Yes, on the on the Blaza yeah. stand. Yeah. Um, so it's it's never been done before. There have been um, online film festivals, but to be a proper film festival, you actually have to show the films in a hard setting. You know, in 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 a place. Yeah, it needs not to be just a, a proper presentation and yeah. and there needs to be uh yeah, a screening it, ha- it has to be film. a screening of the film that people can all come to. So bo- both of, both films will be screened and the shortlisted what we'll we'll do prior to announcing the the actual winners is we will put together uh sort of the best clips of all of the shortlisted films and they'll all show as a, as a trailer yeah. before the winner. So you even if you don't win but you get shortlisted you will have some of your footage up on screen. All the details will be online, uh, but I can tell you now you'll need a trailer and your fa- main main film. Everything yeah. will need to be uh, done with that, but there'll be a lot more details in the, the coming weeks. But now we're just letting you know that it's a way to begin and uh, people can start thinking about their ideas or films they've made in the last year. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the other thing is that uh, it needs to be... We, we want it to be fairly current, so we would like people to have filmed it in the last 18 months yeah. uh, but we'll we'll put those those criteria down and of course we're right at the start really of the the hunting season the rut the red rut is just about to start all the bird seasons are opening there's hunting all around the world right now so it's the perfect time if you haven't done it before this is even especially with the amateur category about encouraging people to do it for the first time and tell your story mm-hmm. here's the opportunity here's the incentive to do it did we say we were going to have an international category? No, it's it's going to be open, open completely. to everyone. So this is not just for 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 people in the UK. Although we would love people from our home country to be the bulk of you, you need know, to up the your entries. game. There's some impressive people around the world doing some very incredible things at an amateur level. Yes, no, Daryl is absolutely right. Um, but to all of our listeners on the podcast from around the planet. This is going to be open to you. There will be a small fee uh, to enter. Uh, this is to cover uh, administration. Administration, basically. basically. A lot of time and effort goes into putting on these things, not just from ourselves, but from Northern Shooting Show as well. Yeah. So uh, between the, the two of us, well, I say the two of us, I mean Pace Productions, mm-hmm. uh, me and my brother, and uh, the Northern Shooting Show, uh, we obviously need to be able to afford to do this. Mm-hmm. So. But also, uh, it, it is most definitely worth your while because the, the, prizes, the prizes are they're worth a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to tell you exactly what they're worth once we uh, can, uh, w- once we know exactly what models we're going to be giving yeah. away. Yeah. So that's it. Um, you're about to hear from Phil. We kick straight into it. It's. Uh, I, I just wish I'd had longer with him because I, I really enjoy talking to Phil, and I'm but sure we're, we're going to. He's going to come soon. on again, and we are going to the states at some point. Uh, we keep saying this, but it is happening because the the hunting film tour is on, and uh, we the dates are going to be announced shortly. You've yeah, yeah. I, I was just speaking to Gary just two days ago, and we were trying to work out which showing in the hunting film tour that are. This is um, separate to our this our, is, yeah, our, n- our thing hunting film tour. This is for the film in search of reverence, and it's going round the United States and I believe Canada yep. uh, for twelve months. Yeah, from August to August. August to August. And, August to July. And it gets shown all around the countries in cinemas all over the place and our film is one of 
a few films that is being shown at the the films, and we are going to go to one uh, of the screenings. To one of the screenings, and it, it's more likely going to be the United States that we're going to because we have other things we want to go. Yeah, to see. I, Gary reckoned that one of the a, a good screening for us to go to would be the one in Idaho, or one of the ones in Idaho. I don't know if they have multiple screenings. So, there, do so. we have any listeners in Idaho? We we probably do. So we would appreciate it very much if you are an Idaho listener, ping us a message because we we're, we are going to go to Montana as well. We have to. We've got uh, people we need to go and see there. Yeah. Um, but I think that is. I it think that's it. We, we've talked about a lot of travel around the world. I don't know when we're going to find yeah, time exactly. to do it all. <laughs> uh, don't forget, as always, that this podcast is supported and sponsored by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Phil, thank you for joining us on the Into the Wilderness podcast. You are not new for this podcast. We had you on when we met you in Iwa quite a few months back now, and we have just spent a quite marvellous couple of days with you in Blair Athol, along with a whole bunch of of other journalists on a a rather special trip. Tell our listeners a little a little bit about that. Give us a give them an overview of what we were doing up there in the Highlands. Uh, you know, Mark Newton and, and Simon Barr and I have been friends for, for quite some time. And I was at the Dallas Safari Club show uh, last January. And Mark was showing me the new Rigby rifles. And he kind of winks at me and pulls me behind the, the booth. And he goes, I want to show you something that hasn't been out yet. I'm like, OK. And he pulled out one of the first Highland Stalkers. And I, I picked it up. And I just, you know, look, I'm a connoisseur of fine rifles and especially older styled rifles. I really have a passion about that. And I looked at him. And I said, "Buddy, you know, you you've got a guaranteed winner here." I said, "It's it's right. The the lines are perfect. It's right where it needs to be. Price point that's affordable could become a family heirloom." Blah 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 blah. And he asked me. He said, uh, "Could you come to Scotland with me in September to hunt a red stag?" And it took me a half a nanosecond to go. Uh, yeah, I'm open. <laughs> so, you know, we uh, we all got together. We had a, a wonderful tour of the Rigby shop and their and their gun making facility behind it. Uh, I learned a lot about what goes into you know the hand finishing of the Rigby rifles. But you know, from there we got on the Caledonian sleeper and woke up in Blair Athol to the sound of bagpipes on on what was actually one of the prettiest estates I've ever seen in my life. Um, and, you know, I got to tell you, you know, a kid kid coming from a very poor background, you know, deer hunting was everything to me as a younger man. And I've, I've definitely got the Africa bug. While I respect Europe, don't get me wrong, you know, I, I love to travel in Europe. I'm an Italian, you know, or of Italian descent. And, uh, you know, I've, I've traced my family's history and roots and been there. I never really gave a lot of thought to hunting in Europe, but I, I'm hooked. The Scottish Islands have a have a certain addictive quality to them, you know, both the, you know, as, as we all experience together, you know, those traditions, uh, Ronnie Hepburn was our stalker, you know, he was in his sixties and this guy was just a, a walking machine, but one, I, I don't know if you drink the water and it gets in your blood or what the deal is. It, it was a fantastic experience with no holds barred. You know, the, the Blair Athol castle experience was wonderful. To, to be in the hills among the heather and the grass and the garren ponies and those views, uh, weather change every 15 minutes and and even the midges I, I have to give props to the midges because they're part of the experience i can't believe that you've um, given you the know, midges credit for your experience place, you know i'm sitting here just two weeks out of the hunt looking at my wife going i'd go back next year <laughs> that, <laughs> i'm that sure would... you know you guys you guys are native so maybe it doesn't have the same allure to you but you know i could see it in your face it was a very very special experience that was your first time in scotland wasn't it 
Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you've got to, you know, get your feet wet, as they say, that's a, that's a hell of a way to do it. Just before before we we come off this, because we could literally talk about an hour just on, on that trip, and I'm sure we're going to cover it again at some point. Um, using a Garen to take a stag off the hill. There will be a lot of people who listen to this podcast who, who are, are hunters and stalkers and have probably shot a lot of deer, but quite a small number of people have probably had the privilege of using a pony. What is that experience like and what does it add to it, Phil? Well, you know, we, we, it was a, essentially a two-day hunt for me. Uh, I got my stag on the first day and we actually used an Argo to get it out. Uh, but for me, the pressure was off. You know, at that point in time, I, I went with Mike Scobie and Mark Newton and we had the ponies in the hills. So I, you know, I had no pressure as a shooter. Uh, I just got to sit back and soak it in. You know, there's there's a there's a, you know, and invariably there's a connection between horses and humans, just like there is with dogs and humans. We all work together well for centuries. And to have those beasts up in the hills was just nothing shy of fantastic. You know, they've got special saddles, you know, engineered to get the stags across, not for humans asses. And, you know, they they, they work so well in that environment, you know, short legged, sturdy little beasts. And it was it was really awesome. You know, the, the, the entire thing had a had a flair to it that is hard to describe to an American who's familiar with our whitetail deer hunting. You know, we have our own traditions and it's all fantastic stuff. But I, I would say that the Scottish traditions especially are, are very, very deep rooted, very well respected and time honored. You know, so for me to take part in that was just fantastic. You know, the, the stalkers, the traditional garb, the Garen ponies. You know, even the little things, the stalkers carrying of the rifle and setting up the shot kind of creates a bond between two hunters that you don't get on a solo deer hunt here. And, uh, you know, I, I think the best way I can put it to you is that I would go back again next year. You know, it, it, it kind of hit me in the fields, if you will. Um, <clears throat> struck a real chord with me as a hunter. Uh, it is uh, absolutely tremendous. And if anybody has the opportunity to go in the hills with a pony, just absolutely do it because it does add a dimension which is quite unlike anything else now phil if we if we extract ourselves from scotland uh, and maybe talk a little bit about some of your other hunting adventures over the last couple of years one thing we we don't do a massive amount of uh, on this show is just story tell uh, i talk about guns and ammo and the actual hunting experiences because we're, we're very often talking about quite serious topics a lot of conservation-based uh, topics so and we're going to touch on something towards the end of the podcast but where have you been recently is there something you'd like was it australia you were in recently or was it uh you've just come back from africa not too many months ago uh last november we were in mozambique uh unveiling the heim model 89b on a cape buffalo hunt and i did i in july we went to australia into arnhem land for water buffalo okay um so a couple of great experiences uh, let me touch on Mozambique first. You know, African hunting, you know, and I know you guys are conservation guys and a little politically driven, which I think is a great thing because these issues and ideas need to come to the forefront. I went on a non-trophy, non-export Cape Buffalo hunt, which uh, essentially means that, you know, I'm going to pay the fees and I'm going to pay the hunter and I'm going to pay the conservation block fees, but I'm not taking the horns, the hide, the head, anything home. It all belonged to the community. At uh, we, we did it for a show called Tracks Across Africa. And if you go on, uh, there's an app called My Outdoor TV. It's kind of inexpensive. You can download it and, and watch the show. Um, we, at the end of the show, presented the meat of that buffalo to the village. 
And to watch those women with the babies tied on their back and some, you know, younger children with babies tied on their back, everybody received a piece of meat. Everybody's family was fed. You know, uh, it was it was providing protein to a protein starved environment. And I'll be honest, it felt really good to me. You know, and there's the usual, you know, uh, accusations. Oh, he's a trophy hunter. He just shot it for the head. And that wasn't the case. You know, we took a respectable head in the fact that it was an old bull. You know, he was past his prime, he, you know, horns worn smooth, just 100 years old. And, you know, it was, it, he, he's going to die. The lions are going to get him or, or old age is going to get him. And, and we took him and we utilized his meat, which was fantastic. Uh, so, you know, for me as a as a writer, as a hunter and someone like you guys who want to spread the message, that felt really good. You know, did I do it, you know, for the for the good of the people? Well, that, that's half the thing. Uh, first and foremost, I'm a hunter and I like hunting and I'm, I'm not going to excuse that fact or try and hide it or, or be ashamed of it in any way, shape or form. Uh, but, you know, I will say that, you know, with with the, the arrangement that Mark Haldane of uh, Zambezi Delta Safaris has in Kutana 11, he provides, I think it's 40 buffalo and 80 reedbuck to these communities. And, and the anti-poaching that he does has brought his, his buffalo herd from 2,900 animals, uh, I think it was a decade ago, up to 30,000. So you've got a win-win situation. You know, you've got a healthy herd of animals. You've got a a population of humans that are native, not only employed by Mark in that block, but you know these people are fed well. They don't need to go poaching. It's just handled properly. And uh, you know, for me, that was an that was an eye opener. Um, so you know. If if I can get you guys a link to that, I will. And if you want to, you know, comment on it in the future, I think that was one of those points that you know it's really hard for anybody to argue with. Oh. And you know, while they say, well, you know, hunting's cruel, but when was the last time you gave, uh, you know, uh, eight hundred pounds of meat to a village? Yeah, I'll, I'll look that one up actually because I've got the, the my outdoor uh, TV app, so I will go. Is it up, is it up to watch now, Phil? I believe so. Yes. Cool. Yes, oh, it okay. ran last season, so uh, it it should be. It was season thirteen. Uh, I'm not sure of the episode four or five or something like that. I'll definitely go check that. I know. Is, that is there a free month trial right now or something? There's quite a lot. There's of quite a few. No, there is a free month trial. Yeah. So, so if you sign up now uh, with My Outdoor TV, you'll get a free month trial. I think I'm not sure if it's UK only, but it's just launched in the UK, mm-hmm. as many people might have heard on the news. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, everyone go check that. Out. I'm I'm going to go watch that episode. I know what just what you were saying there, Phil. That Mark Haldane there, he's done some fantastic work and his the anti poaching efforts that are basically funded by hunting there is quite staggering and on a scale that doesn't really get done by the government. No, no, no. Well, you see, it again, you've got that double-edged sword. Uh, the government doesn't have the financial resources to do that level of anti-poaching. Now, now, Mark is uh, almost a zealot about it. And, you know, he's shown me enough snare wire to, to fence in a farm. And he's shown me gin traps that he, he has so many gin traps, he's actually using them as reinforcing steel when he pours concrete which is a scary thought. You know, when you're, when your professional hunter says you put your feet exactly in my footprints because you know, this, this could be put, it's, it's uh, you know, a, a rather unsettling feeling, <clears throat> but he's got, <clears throat> excuse me, he's got a helicopter uh, uh, funded by Dallas Safari club, who is a, a huge backer in this thing. You know, DSC is, is so pro, you know, anti-poaching that uh, they, they help out with, with an immense amount of money. Uh, so he's got the little helicopter, he's got a squad of motorcycles, and guys who really know how to do it well. 
you know, uh, we were there filming for the TV show and they picked up a couple of poachers. You know, you see the guy maybe, you know, put up a fight or whatever the case may be. But they had him in custody and took him to the powers that be. And, you know, look, it, it's good for the game. It's good for the people. It's a win-win situation. And, you know, when it comes to African animals, it, look, it, cuddly animals aren't supposed to be killed, I suppose you could say, in the in the eyes of the anti-hunter. You know, nobody ever complained about a hyena being shot or a crocodile being shot. But, you know, God forbid you shoot a lion and it's like, oh, that's cute. And Disney had one, so we can't do that. But uh, when, when you really want to have, you know, the rubber hit the road, you look at Mark Haldane's Kutata 11 as a conservation model, and it's really, really difficult to argue the numbers. Numbers don't lie. Facts don't lie. The game is back. You know, the Renamo for Limo conflict has been quelled, at least for the time being. And the game has come back to the point where when you go out on those uh, Zambezi floodplains, you'll see herds of buffalo approaching a thousand animals, which is something I've never Staggering. seen. Staggering. So, been a lot of years since really I've seen those kind of numbers. It's it, you know I'm chuckling to myself here, Phil, because I just I said before you went to talk about your your trip to uh, Mozambique because we're, we're going to storytell and talk about guns and stuff here. But immediately it's been dragged, and I don't actually believe it was intentionally by you. Uh, an amazing conservation story, and I think that just shows to people that was not this is not the intention of this conversation. Right? We're just we're just talking and giving people a bit of insight into what you get up to. But immediately that is where we've ended up, and that's fantastic. Well, for me, you know, look, I, I could tell you uh, we took a fantastic high model 89B and a classic cartridge. Uh, and I do want to hear that, too. <laughs> nitro, and we took a great bull. And while as a hunter, that was an absolute highlight for me, that connection with the village almost superseded that. So if you're if you're asking me, I suppose that was part of the highlight of that trip as well. You know, um did, did I make a great shot and was it incredibly exhilarating? Yes, undoubtedly. I mean, Cape Buffalo hunting, if I had terminal cancer and they said, you've got six weeks to live, that's what I would want to hunt. That's my favorite thing. Uh, but, you know, it almost trumped it when we delivered everything to the village. And I said, you know, that's a really cool thing right there. You know, I am a gun writer and I, I'm, I'm as pro-conservation as you guys are. And I, I make every effort to, you know, spread that message around in my, my articles and whatever videos we do. But, uh, you know, Dave Folson over at Safari Classics Productions and I felt that was uh, such an important part of that uh, experience that we, we made it the last five minutes of the TV show to show the, you know, the viewing public that, hey, we're not just a bunch of guys out there for our own glory. There, there is a bigger message here. Uh, I was going to save this to the end, but it ties in quite well with this example that you've just uh, given us here, Phil, which is what's happened in in BC with the the banning in some areas and the, the Great Bear, uh, I think it's called the Great Bear Forest for grizzly bear, and then the restrictions of hunting in other places. Now, we're not going to go into massive detail of this, but it has just happened in recent weeks. It's been in the news in the UK, so yeah. it's, it's a fairly significant thing. Made your headlines, huh? Yeah, it has made our headlines. And why I'm drawing the comparison here is you have an example there with the buffalo where basically everything, you're not allowed to take anything, but everything is being utilized. Whereas mm -hmm. what we have here in BC, from my understanding, um, in the areas where there's now these greater restrictions, is there's going to be meat extraction allowed, but everything else has to remain. And it's not like someone else is utilizing it. It's just going to rot out there. It's, you know, the, the, and like you said, without getting into, into deep emotion on my end or, or too much depth, there's an emotion here 
in the political vein. It's not among the hunters, and I don't even think it's around, among the average citizens. It's it's become very vogue lately to poo-poo the killing of anything, you know, and it's it's so entirely hypocritical that I, I get actually physically angry about it. Um, we all eat meat. We all utilize meat. We're only here because of meat. We domesticated animals and survived and developed the brain we have because of protein that is in meat. I mean, it wasn't broccoli that we don't, we don't have teeth to, to mow grass. We have canines and incisors and, you know, I don't want to kill everything on the planet. I don't want to, look, I wouldn't hunt a rhino. If they gave me the tag, I wouldn't do it. I don't think the situation is right. Just like I wouldn't hunt a tiger. But that said, British Columbia, where I've never personally set foot, but I have many friends who are outfitters, you know, guides and people who have hunted it as well, have a healthy population of grizzly bears. And if anything, Teddy Roosevelt's Northern American conservation model works. We brought back the bison. We brought back the pronghorn antelope, uh, especially here in upstate New York. We brought back the white-tailed deer. We have a healthy population of black bear uh, across southern Africa. You know, South Africa's efforts and Namibia's efforts with the rhino have been nothing but positive until late. The emotion, from what I understand from the story, and, and if I'm wrong, I will I will own it, but from what I understand in British Columbia, it, it's, it's an emotion-driven thing. We don't want to be that kind of people that just goes hunting grizzly bear. And I mean, you know, to me, there's a live and let live kind of thing. Do, do we want to go out and shoot everyone? Absolutely not. I, I don't think there's a hunter in this day and age who, who would adopt that mentality and try and defend it openly wise utilization and conservation the hunter pays the animals are managed the species thrives the habitat is conserved i think that natural flow because human beings have taken over the planet is is very very important in this modern era if there was a study that said that those grizzly bears in that area were extremely endangered and, you know, for whatever reason, you know, they, they, they needed to be preserved, I'd be okay with it. Put a 10-year ban on it, let them come back, and then let's re-examine it when we get numbers that are better. My personal thought is, though, if we go around, you know, j just like with Confederate statues or, or Brexit or whatever, where, where somebody's constantly offended, we're headed down a very, very slippery slope that could that could result in some tragic and maybe even unintended consequences. I don't know. What, what do you guys think about the whole thing? I mean, I, I need to read more into it, but my understanding from what I have read and what I've, I've listened to is pretty much as you've outlined, Phil, which is that in, in these areas where they have put these, these new restrictions in, um, which is a meat remo removal, but without any trophy, no, no fur, no claws, no skull, it has been, and on top of that, the, the banning of completely of grizzly bear hunting in the Great Bear Forest, and I think maybe one or two other places, um, has, as you've said, had nothing to do with poor management through hunting. In fact, quite the opposite. For many, many years, the proliferation of grizzly bears there has been as a result of very careful management and harvestable surplus um, of populations. The hunting has had, um, to the best of my knowledge, absolutely no negative impact on the populations and arguably positive impacts on the populations. So it, it is very much a case here of um, people through government either reflecting the view of maybe the, the mass of people who voted them in or maybe their own personal views have made a decision where they say, I don't like what you do, 
and so you can't do it anymore rather than making decisions based on fact and science uh, grizzly bears comes into i think the same kind of uh, speech well the same well, people think of it the same as lions and so on. What you see in this country, people, hunters, uh, when an article comes up about someone shooting a, a grizzly bear, criticizing them hunting bears from this country, saying, why would you do that? Other hunters. Other hunters mm-hmm. doing it. Um, so like a misunderstanding yeah. of species. Yeah. Well, tell me, how, how could that strike? I mean, where, all right, where do you draw the line? It's okay to shoot a red stag. Why? Because we're going to eat it. Okay. Uh, so we're talking about bear meat, which I, I haven't eaten brown bear, but I've shot several black bears. I, I eat it. I actually like it. Uh, where do you draw the line? Why is a red stag or, or roe deer's life worth less than a grizzly bear? It's it's a very, very fair point, Phil. And in fact, I would even extend it beyond that. And we've said it on this show before, is all life you should really value all life the same and this is where you we we come into uh arguments or we we provide uh a a basis for defense when you're when you're having discussions with people who might not eat meat whether that be vegans or vegetarians and they're criticizing what you do uh as a hunter or a meat eater and you say to them well just think what has died to put your food on the table now that might not be a bird or a deer but just think of insects okay they're tiny but the masses of insects that are killed globally to provide food why should we care about those less than we care about a grizzly bear or an elephant think about bees as pollinators i mean that's an incredibly important story insects some could argue are actually way more important than some of our our larger land species for our survival for our survival wasps bees um, you know certain other species that sea, ma- sea life, sea life. Then you've got spiders and so on. You know the list goes on and on and on uh, of how the importance of insects. Yeah. So so yeah, I I agree. With, I agree with you, Phil. I, I there is this distortion and of fish. What, a fish, fish is yes. fish is a big one because fish is a big one because for some reason people just have a fish is not in the same category as as uh, a chicken or a cow or anything like that. But the bottom line is, fish has a, a very hard time of it in in our. If I'm not talking about farmed fish here, I'm talking about wild fish, yeah. has a really hard time yeah, right now. And the hook and drag it to shore by its face. Yeah, uh, I probably shouldn't say that because I want to ban that next. But you know, the the quick dispatching of an animal becomes uh, you know you you heathen you. I I, I don't know. Look, th- there's there's two two definite facts. We as a species, the human beings, aren't going to become any less any point in time soon. We have to agree on that. I mean, you know, we're not going to wipe ourselves out. Uh, What we are going to have to do, though, is to use what space we have left wisely. Now, you know, I I took a lot of flack for hunting an elephant in Zimbabwe. Uh, It was on the borders of uh, Hwangi National Park where there's a definite overpopulation but three tons of elephant meat went to that village. And this particular elephant was a problem. He destroyed a corn crop. But I, you know, I'm not going to lie. I wanted to hunt an elephant. I wanted that experience. But I made damn sure that the entire elephant was utilized. You know, getting back to your point about farming and, and you know, a vegan or vegetarian lifestyle, I, I, don't, I don't begrudge anybody eating anything they want. Mm-hmm. If, if that makes you feel better or that, you know, diet works out for you, so be it. Um, but do realize, you know, I've grown up in, in fruit farms my entire life here in the Hudson Valley of New York. 
The state issues nuisance deer permits because they damage the trees uh, to the farmers, and they'll go out and they'll kill a, a great amount of deer just to protect that fruit crop. Yep. So we're right back to it. You know, is your is your vegan vegetarian lifestyle helping wildlife? <laughs> yeah, it's it, for for me. It's just it's an honesty thing. Be honest about our personal impacts and that means really thinking through the process uh, but and to be fair to a lot of people a lot of people just probably haven't actually taken the time to think uh, through the process or maybe even had the availability of the information like what you've just told us there i mean i didn't know about that specific example but i can think mm -hmm. of citrus farms in south africa where there's a very very similar story to have that information available to make those decisions just realize that we have an impact and exactly what it is and don't necessarily think and this goes for, for hunters as well don't necessarily think that we are so much better whether it be a hunter or, or a vegan than everybody else and take a massively higher moral ground without understanding exactly where everybody f fits into the puzzle right you know and and the whole the whole thing of it is i think if the store is all closed and the belly button hit the backbone in about three days, the entire world's outlook on life and, and the processes that we go through would change. Yeah. You know, we're, we're a little too comfy. We're a little too fat. Um, we, we forget where things actually come from. And, they, you know, maybe that's modern civilization's fault or whatever the case may be. Again, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm more of a live and let live kind of guy. But you as, as hunters. I think we really need to we need to examine ourselves in the mirror when nobody's looking and and be okay with our conscience. You know what I mean? I, I yeah, I absolutely do. And you, you're you're very very right there, Phil. Um, if we are getting too political, I want to tell you about Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, just, I was just about to say to you, let let let's let's leave this heavy conversation behind. Uh, tell me, story tell about Australia. I want to hear about your trip because we didn't actually really have a chance to talk about this when I saw you a few weeks ago. Right, right. Um, Australia is a long way from America. <laughs> it's a long way from anywhere. <laughs> it's a long way from anywhere. <laughs> Very long way. Uh, I had a couple of flight uh, uh, snafus. I was 24 hours behind everybody else. Uh, American Airlines, bless their heart, neglected to put my bag or rifle on the flight with me. Hey, you're lucky you didn't so get thrown off the flight. <laughs> got even worse. Uh, but I have to give uh, mad props to, to both Qantas Airlines and the Australian customs people. Because they worked with me and uh, were, were very, very nice and very, very pleasant to deal with. And, and long story short, I ended up in camp a couple of days behind everybody else. Um, Australia is full of beautiful nothing. Uh, it's the best way I can describe it. Uh, land mass wise, it's bigger than the continental 48 United States uh, with less than one-tenth of the population. So there's a lot of wide open spaces. I was lucky enough to hunt with a fellow named Graham Williams, who is a hell of a bloke if you want to go down for a buffalo. Uh, I think it's biggameaustralia.com uh, or just Google Graham Williams. Uh, he's got a concession in Arnhem Land, which is the aboriginal lands a little bit east of Darwin in the Northern Territory. He's got a concession of two and a half million acres or one million hectares. That's crazy. <laughs> It, it's it's almost – he told me it would take 12 hours to drive from one end to the other, the way the roads are. <laughs> That's pretty cool. You know, we, we saw wallabies. There were there were crocs in the water, uh, you know, dingoes running around. But the Asiatic water buffalo, which was introduced to Australia in 1830 for both meat and leather, has, has gone feral, um, much like the camels, donkeys, and horses have. 
And they're actually considered a nuisance species, which I did not know until just prior to the hunt. So he's issued so many permits. Uh, he employs Aboriginal people from uh, Weeman and, and I think I forget the name of the town. I think it's, I think it's Weeman. Um, he, you know, his employees are Aboriginal. He's got a connection again to the community. But there are just more buffalo than you'll ever see anywhere else in your life. And for a big game hunter who likes to practice stalking, you know, the, the instant comparison is drawn to Cape Buffalo. Well, they're not as mean and they're not as nasty. And the answer to that is no, they're not. But they are bigger and they certainly are dangerous. Hmm. So, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, two days before we got into camp, another professional hunter uh, about 50 miles away, he had a buffalo charge him and he got smashed up pretty well. And I think he was six weeks in hospital. Wow. So, you know, a, a big water buffalo will hurt you. But good Lord, guys, are they fun to hunt? You know, they're they're probably 21, 2200 pounds on a great big bodied bull. Uh, you can really pick and choose your animal because there are so many to to see. Uh, you can afford to be a little picky. They're not as switched on as a Cape buffalo is in Africa, and I would probably attribute that to a lack of predation. Uh, there are no lions to come after them, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's a different evolution, if you will. But Australia has got its own – it's kind of like Scotland compared to the rest of the world. It's got its own unique beauty. And, you know, for somebody who's done Africa and they're looking for something different, I'd really recommend it. it it's a rugged camp. Uh, they, you know, everybody always says there's there's everything in Australia is trying to kill you. You know, you've got spiders and you've got snakes and you've got cane toads and, you know, all this other crazy stuff. So you, you're, you're kind of on alert that way. But, you know, for a hunter who enjoys, you know, hunting the bovine species, uh, it, I think that needs to be on the list of, of things you've done or are going to do. It, it's a really unique experience. You know, the, the meat goes to the Aborigines and, again, feeds the villages, you know, without getting back on the conservation message. But it isn't just a, you know, shoot it, that kind of thing. Um, they are huge and they can be nasty. But, uh, you know, just just to tell the story real quick, uh, we had another Heim double rifle this time in, in 470, you know, a really big stick. And we, we had spotted the bull we wanted to take. Um, he was actually feeding in the grass like 300, 400 yards away. And Graham says to me, do you see the one with the pink horns? And I'm going, look, I know gin and tonics last night, but am I really seeing pink <laughs> horns? <laughs> yeah, it's, the, it's the mud they roll in. You know, the, the soil conditions change every half mile or so around here, and there's varying shades of mud. We actually stalked to within 15 yards of that bull because, you know, Graham used every little tree and, and termite mound and the wind perfectly. And I'm kind of wondering to myself, how close are we going to get? You know, there's no bayonet stud on the end of this 470. <laughs> I don't know if we're, we're getting into a gunfight or what are we doing? Uh, and that will also be on TV on a show called the uh, Trigicon's World of Sports Afield. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was a lot of fun to get within 15 yards of, a, of an animal weighing over a ton and then have it all begin. You know what I mean? Mm. Sometimes there's not a big enough stick in your hands. Uh, I mean, t talk to me a little bit about big, big boars, big caliber guns. Cause a lot of people, especially in the UK, probably have never fired one. 375, the, the odd person might have a 375 that they've had a chance to shoot on a shooting range. I mean, when we were in Scotland, we had the great privilege of being able to shoot a, a number of big cartridge um singles and uh, well bolt actions and doubles there it, it's a totally different ball game when you're talking about calibers of those proportions you know i uh, the door opened for me with with moose actually uh my dad and i we hunted moose together in quebec a couple of times and i have yet to take a moose uh 
we, we saw a couple of real small bulls and passed and, and the situation just wasn't right. But when I saw one, I said to myself, you know, I, I was shooting a 308 Winchester at the time, and I'm probably not correct in this statement, but at the time I felt that way. I said, I need a bigger gun. <clears throat> you know, these things are just enormous. And if a 308 is good for deer, I, I need something big. So what I wanted to buy was a 338 Winchester because that's kind of North America's do-all cartridge. It big is, bears, it, it elf, big moves, it works fine. Uh, the guy at the gun shop didn't have one, but he said, wait, you know, if, if you don't mind a little bit more bullet weight and a, you know, similar kind of cartridge, I have this 375 Holland. And I went, wow, is that an elephant gun? He goes, well, yeah, but it works for everything. And I just, you know, I bought it. And that was somewhere around the year 2000. And I started having a lot of fun <clears throat> just shooting those big bore rifles. Number one, they were as accurate as a 3006 or a 275 Rigby or, or whatever, you know, 6555. I can get a 375 to shoot well under a minute of angle. So that was amazing. And then I, I, you know, I started bear hunting with it. And I'm like, wow, you, know, you, you really can tailor this gun to do this, that, and the other thing. Long story short, I took it to Africa and it worked out perfect. And I'm a huge fan of the 375. But when I planned for a Cape Buffalo, the, the, the hook was kind of in my mouth. And I said, I want to try something bigger. And I went to a 416 Remington. And, and that, you know, again, big gun. Powerful kick, but you learn how to shoot it. It's a different other than, you know, I don't know if you guys shoot a lot of 300 Winchester, but 300 Winchester Magnum, 300 Weatherby, they can get a, a little sharp recoil. Uh, the big bores are more of a push. And I just kind of got I, I became a fan of that that big bore feel. I, you know, the gun felt great in my hands. And to me, it also represents, you know, the fact that we're going on a dangerous game hunt. I mean, yes, you can use them to hunt deer if you want to, but, you know, when, when you need a big gun, you're doing something dangerous, which is my favorite style of hunting. So when I became a gun writer, you know, one of the first opportunities I jumped at was to review some of the different big bores, 458 lot, 450, 400, uh, four, 416 Rigby, and now the 470. And, you know, I, I play with 505 Gibbs, and I get a lot of toys to come in that we do for ammunition and, and rifle review. But there's there's almost an addictive quality to those as well. You know, the, every, you, you think about it, it's like, oh, my God, this thing's going to knock me over. And, and you know, both Byron and Darrell, you were there. Uh, you saw that, you know, Rachel Carey was shooting the 470. Yeah. My wife was shooting the 350 Rigby. You know, women can shoot them. Smaller frame guys can shoot them. It's really not that terrible. But they're they're a wonderful experience in and of the fact that it truly will handle any game on Earth. So, you know, when you get up into that class of a, a, a Cape buffalo in thick bush or a, a huge-bodied water buffalo in Australia or an elephant anywhere on the continent, which can just rip you to pieces and if it falls on you, you, you know, you'll probably be dead. You rely on that cartridge a little and you look at it in a different light than you do your deer gun. Yeah, you're right, though. There's a, diff there's a very different emotion about it. When I... When I have the, the chance to walk uh, with a big caliber gun in Africa, uh, normally 375 or I, I shot a 450 quite a few years ago, it just feels different. It, it's you, you, you walk across the land with a different gait. It's, it's like you've been raised on, a, on, on another plane. You've been it's elevated in your predator level. Pounds, right? <laughs> it, it, sorry, say that again, Phil. I said you're six inches taller and you drop twenty pounds. Exactly, you <laughs> like kind of walk. Of <laughs> you kind of walk with your chest out, and it, it's it, it's a strange thing. You you have to experience it, and it's uh, yeah, it, it's it's like nothing you experience with anything below sort of three seven five. That three seven five is kind of the the entry for that. I I don't even get that feeling with like a nine point three. 
Um, for for those people who who like guns and and cartridges and stuff, they they'll appreciate what I'm saying. Um, bolt action and double rifle, Phil, as a, a sort of as we get to towards the end of this, it it is one of those great debates. If you're gonna go dangerous game, uh, dangerous game hunting. Do you take a bolt action? Do you take a double rifle? A lot of the the cartridges or similar cartridges are available in both, so that's not always the the consideration as to what can I shoot through it. You've had a chance to to use both quite quite extensively. What's your kind of view on it? it uh, it's a loaded question, uh, and it's one that's been going on for a hundred years, and it, it'll probably be going on a hundred years from now. Both have. Their their flaws both have their benefits. And I can put it probably simplest this way. Nothing has a faster second shot than a double rifle. But the bolt action has a faster third shot. Mm-hmm. I think that the double rifle limits the range. Uh, and what do I mean by that? Normally, they're not scoped. They're either iron-sighted, or I recently used one with a Trigicon RMR red dot, which does extend the range out to about 100 yards pretty, you know, my eyes are getting older, uh, a little bit easier than iron sights do. Whereas, you know, with you, if you've got a 416 Rigby with a, with a 1 to 5 scope on it, you can shoot a buffalo at 200 yards if that's the only shot you have. Um, I think you'll get a wider variety of shot opportunities with a bolt-action rifle. But when the chips are down and the the excrement has hit the oscillator, if you will, and you're following up a wounded animal, God forbid, in thick bush or or you're hunting in the Zambezi Valley for elephant, that immediate second shot in a handy iron sighted rifle really shows the value of the, the double rifle. If I had to ultimately choose one, if they said, Masaro, you get one gun for the rest of your life to hunt all your dangerous game. It would probably be my Heim Express in 404. It's a it's an ultimately reliable bolt gun. Uh, shoots fantastically with iron sights. Can be scoped very easily. Very universal. Uh, but given my druthers, I, I've ordered a 470 from Heim, uh, so that I can do that. I can let the tracker carry the 470. If for some reason I don't place that shot properly on the buffalo, or even if I do, and he has the adrenaline to get in the thick bush. I can exchange guns for that for that short gun scenario in the 470, a very heavy bullet, low velocity, lots of striking power, not a long range gun, but it kind of puts an, uh, an exclamation point on the end of the sentence when it when when you need to. So, you know, th- there's a certain as we saw in Scotland when when Mark brought out that beautiful uh, old doll's head 470 Rigby, you know, there's a certain mystique and romance to a double rifle that is is irrefutable and will never go away. They're they're beautiful. Uh, I was just in London at the Holland and Holland shop, and I held one of their custom shop 600 nitros that I think worked out to I don't know what it was 320,000 pounds or some crazy amount of money. And I'm looking at the guy going, "Why did you just hand this to me? If I drop it, I have to run." Um, they're they're very nostalgic. They're 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 romantic as romantic gets. You know, you think of your brawny chested, young, strong professional hunter in Africa with a zebra hat band and a double gun. You know, they're they're a useful tool. They're expensive to make and certainly not as cost effective as a bolt gun. I I think if you if you get the bug, you'll probably end up owning both before too long. Hmm. It's I can only I know exactly. I, I, 
the look on your face when you were handling some of those guns was just absolutely priceless. And I could tell that you were a man that massively appreciated what you were holding. And we're going to finish up just touching on Jim well, it, Corbett. It was some of the rarest guns it on the was, planet. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll finish up just touching on uh, Jim Corbett's rifle because I don't think I've seen a look on a man's face apart from when he's been in love with somebody across the room. Uh, but that sort of feeling and emotion you get with an inanimate object is is quite a difficult one to explain to people, and some people might think it's kind of disturbing if you you, you have that kind of uh, emotion attached to something which is a, a gun, a, a rifle. And I can only compare it to well, there, there are plenty of people, including myself, who have this ridiculous uh, passion and excitement about old Land Rovers. In fact, we had two Land Rovers, uh, Land Rover Defenders, when we were we were up in Scotland. Three, uh, three, yes, yeah, we did, yeah, three yeah. Defenders. And I can only compare it to that. It's the same thing. That's in an animate. Well, it it, do, it does move, but not under its own steam, hopefully. Uh, and a lot of people feel something deep seated about that, almost like you would feel about an animal or a person and the same thing can be true of guns if you get bitten by that bug and i i know that you you are certainly one of those people phil i i got a couple of passions in life and i'll, I'll draw this corollary when you go to the hard rock cafe you are surrounded by a a large number of collectible inanimate objects people's guitars people's coats stage clothing it, they're not the people. They're not the song, but that's what they represent. You know, uh, just after I left you guys, I had a wonderful experience. We went to London, and uh, the wife and I took a tour of the vault in the Hard Rock Cafe. And the curator, you know, was showing me all the various, you know, uh, wonderful, wonderful vintage instruments. Dwayne Allman's guitar. And I know, I don't know what kind of music you guys are into, but for me, that's my other passion. The gentleman sat me down on Jim's couch and handed me Jeff Beck's guitar to play a couple of notes on. And I came out of there shaking. And the only, you know, comparison I could draw was when Mark un unzipped the case on Jim Corbett's rifle. Now, if it wasn't Jim Corbett's rifle, you'd probably look at it and go, eh, that thing's been, you know, it's been around. It, it, the, the bore is shot. Uh, there's no bluing left. The stock is worn. It's dinged. It's, it's not a, a high-value gun. But when you... Or at least for me, who has spent, you know, the last 30 years reading the stories of adventure from India and Africa and, and the, you know, Europe and the North American continent, you realize what that gun has done. When they put it in my hands, it, you could feel almost an energy exchange, kind of like I did with Jeff Beck's guitar. You know, there's a... <sighs> There's a feel to those things, and I'm not a big spiritual guy. I mean, I believe in God, don't get me wrong, but it's not like, you know, th th there's a possession in, in this instrument. But you can tell there's an energy about that, and it was the same way with the Corbett gun. I, I leveled it at the wall, and though we were, what, 15, 16 people in that room yeah. at that point in time? Uh, I wasn't there. You know, I was in uh, Pradesh in India, and there was a man-eating tiger coming around the corner. It, it took me to that place, and, you know— when when we were at the range the next day, you know, shooting a century old 350 Rigby Magnum takedown or a doll's head, you know, 470 or one of those 450 nitros that that are probably over 100 years old. I can only imagine, you know, the people throughout history who have held that the things they've done with it, maybe the dreams they had or, you know, the hardships they faced. 
And and to me, that's where it all comes together. You know, I'm a, I'm a very nostalgic guy when it comes to hunting. And, you know, I can see you guys are too. We all embrace those Scottish traditions. You know, we're, we're, we're come together as, as a decent people, as respectable, responsible hunters, because we want that connection with history. It's, it's, it's a means of, of embracing our forefathers, but bringing it into the present. And I think touching those guns and using them and, and, and Mark Newton, if you're listening, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that experience. I think it was very important for everybody there. Because it's not just a mass produce. It's, it's not a wrench, you know. It's it's it is a tool, but it's so much more than that. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think you guys would agree. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is the the most weird sensation, especially with a rifle like the Jim Corbett rifle, to think that his hands were on that exact rifle. And Mark told us that it, they reckon about a millimeter of wood had been worn off all over the yeah, stock from holding it, just from being carried around. Which was incredible. Uh, just to tie in to what you've just said, Phil, and to, to finish up this podcast, I, I literally just wrote this in an article uh, last night, I think, um, which was one thing that we... No, actually, sorry, it wasn't in an article. I just I penned it for a, a, an Instagram post today, <clears throat> which was that when you get, uh, whether it be an old rifle or you look at some of the more modern rifles, it doesn't just have to be a, a Rigby. Obviously, we've been talking about Rigby because that was the, the trip that we were on. But any any rifle where there's a bit of hand craftsmanship involved at a higher level, you know, a lovely piece of wood, something that you're not going to just swap out for another gun when you get bored of it, something that you're going to pass down. It does carry that history through the generations. And I think it's kind of sad that we live in a world, in a hunting world now, in, in a community where, and, and I think it's especially true in the States, maybe even more so than here, where our rifles and our guns have become a little bit of a, a disposable commodity. You buy a cheapish gun with a plastic stop or even a, an expensive gun with a plastic stop. But are those rifles, those synthetic stocked stainless steel rifles, going to be there in three generations? I would suggest not, but a rifle like a Highland Stork or, or uh, like a, a highly finished CZ, which you can get from their custom shop, might very well be. And it carries a history through generations. And I think that's sad that we're losing that. You know, I, I think it's a double-edged sword there. If... And this is my own recommendation. I keep a journal, a handwritten journal of my hunting exploits, even the silly things I do in my backyard if I saw nothing. I want future generations to know that the gun they inherited, they can read about in great grandpa's journals at some point in time. And I don't necessarily think that if it's a synthetic stainless gun, it, it is soulless. Uh, a lot of things, we, we do live in a disposable world, you're right, but... I think it's what you do with them, and and that's no slight to a good CZ or a good Rigby because there's something hand-touched about that where it becomes a more desirable family heirloom, perhaps. But I'll, I'll leave it at this. My, my dad is a young man, fresh out of the U.S. Army, couldn't afford to buy a really you know expensive rifle, so he bought a, a cheap Mossberg Model 100A in 308, uh, plastic trigger guard, you know, press deer on the side, kind of cheesy from the late 60s. Um, and while he owns some fantastic and beautiful rifles, I, I've told him, I said, Dad, you know, when you're sitting down and, and you want to leave something to somebody, I don't want the house. You know, I, I don't want, I, I'm not looking for any of that. I said, what I would like, though, is your rifle and not for the value of the rifle. It's what you did with it. Yeah. So I think, I think you can make a soulless looking rifle 
into a very precious object. Um, I think it's what we do with it and how we document things. You know, that said, obviously, the the higher end, fancier stuff like the Rigby Highland Stalker has a prestige all on into itself, you know, just looking at it. So um, but but that said, I think it's I think it's our actions that will live on more than the actual inanimate object. But what the inanimate object represents is those actions. Yeah, no, I think that was a, a very fair point and, and counter to, to, to what I said there to finish up the, this podcast. You're absolutely right, Phil. It is, it is what they have done and the stories they can tell. But the important thing is that they can tell the stories and that it can only be done by people passing on those stories by word of mouth or doing as you've done, which is very dedicated, which is to keep a journal of the uh, the things that you have done with the rifles that are in your cabinet. And that is fantastic. It's something I have done in the past and do have, but have been quite bad at keeping it 100% um, up to date in terms of records. And I really must pull my finger out and get back to that. When you come back and they start handing you drams of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> the sentences don't quite flow. <laughs> Phil, it's been a pleasure to have you on. We could literally talk for hours. Byron Darrell, be well, be in touch, and uh, hopefully we'll all be back on another podcast before too long. I'm sure we will. Take it easy, Phil. Thank you. Cheers. And that's it for another two weeks. I hope you enjoyed that interview. And remember, thepacebrothers.com, Instagram, pace underscore brothers, we are on Twitter. I'm not sure what the handle is, but I'm pretty sure it's Pace Brothers. <laughs> we don't use it. All we don't that really much. use it. But the thing is, we say we don't use it. But actually, a lot of people do tweet us. Yeah. Uh, and I do check it, and I do um, sometimes reply. I just, you know, it's just too much. We can't keep up with all this this social media. Obviously, we are on Facebook as well. Uh, which thank you very much for. Um, loads of people that have left us uh, reviews on the the Facebook page, and obviously reviews on our the iTunes. Yeah, I was actually just, I happened to be looking at them last night. Thank you. There's been a couple uh, recently in the last couple of months. Thank you to those people. Thank you to everybody before. Please, if you've never done it or you haven't done it for a while, go and chuck us a review because it really helps our rankings on iTunes. We actually have a lot more reviews on uh, on our podcast than a lot of other outdoors podcasts. So it really does help us reach more people. Make sure you go and end- read one. Oh, you're going to read yeah, a review? Yeah, uh, because uh, people in the UK, you can't see the the reviews that are left from the United States and vice versa. You can only see the reviews that are left from your country. And we have uh, a number of people from the United States that have uh, left and we've got one from the Cornish Humbre from USA. Um, and uh, it is consistent, balance, consistent balanced message that su- uh, successfully articulates conservation from a managed resource perspective should be required listening for all. I like that, required listening required. for all. That, that is very concise and, and brilliant. Okay, I, I I've like got, I'm going to read another one because it's a very nice uh, review. Not Just for British Hunters is the review title, and it is from the left-hand guy from USA. He must be a left-hand shooter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if you love any aspect of being outdoors, hunting, shooting, fishing, kayaking, hiking, you'll get something from this podcast. If you care about traceability of your food, sustainability of the natural world, you'll get something from this podcast. If you don't like these things and don't understand why people uh, why people go into the wild, hunt, fish, or explore, you need to listen to this podcast. If you cannot understand why some of us take it upon ourselves to kill wild animals and yet can hand on heart say that we love those animals, you need to listen to this podcast. The brothers will talk to anyone with anything intelligent to say about hunting, conservation, explore, exploration. This is not 
your a standard 21st century echo chamber uh, difficult subjects are not avoided and the scope is global now that is awesome. a pretty cool uh, I, I haven't even seen that uh, you can see it because uh, I can see it ah okay oh so, that's just made my day there you go and that's not trying to blow smoke up our own asses <laughs> this is we, we made this podcast over two years ago we need to get a cake actually because it oh hang on I think we've passed it have we, we passed it no, I think it's like the 28th or something of this month. Of this, of September. Of September. Uh, oh, we need to look this we up because we, we're going to get a two-year cake. Because that our podcast is two years old, and that's pretty That's pretty good going. Hmm. So uh, we're, yeah, this is number 61. 61, two yeah. years. Uh, and it's only due to the people listening. So thank you yeah, so thank much you. To, to, all, to all of you listening. It means a great deal, and it means that we can keep on doing what we do, which... To be perfectly honest, it is far more to do with the great people that we speak to than, yeah, than us. Yeah, definitely. We, um, all we do is, is... We facilitate the, the questions. We, yeah, we bring people to us or via the internet, and we ask them the questions that everyone else wants to know. And then and give then, those to you. And the thing I love about it is once these people that are very knowledgeable, they're often a hell of a lot more knowledgeable than we are about their subjects because they're often experts in their fields and we could never know as much as these people all the the huge amount of topics we talk about uh but, but once it's out there there's no excuse no because this is this podcast is available on nearly every platform you can think of you can just search for it on google it comes up um and i think more of this is needed not just from our podcast i think if there's more information available that you can easily digest through audio or video i think it it's needed it's good for everything it is good for everyone and just the same as an increased amount of um great storytelling through video which is another thing that we do the more people doing that i think the better the more people having these kind of conversations that we have on podcasts the better we were the just, first people just, to start just, yeah i was going to say we were the first in the united kingdom and the, 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 but the reason i was just i was you you preempted what i was going to say there Dale, is that today two years later uh, almost exactly two years after we started uh, there is now another two podcasts in the UK that talk about not exactly the same stuff both but started, similar both started in the last six months yeah well uh, the Countryside Alliance one was just two weeks ago well exactly that's what yeah. I mean so yeah. all very relatively new mm. but that's great it, the whole point is that it stimulates debate and the more of this kind of good content that is out there the better no I, so I agree the good. and we've said this uh, I'm not sure if it was on the show we've talked to but we've definitely talked to someone about it the more people, I'm, I'm not just talking about podcasts, but I'm talking about other things in life. The more people that's doing something like if there's 10 podcasts in the UK, let's say, all talking about hunting and shooting and fishing or whatever. And if they're all kind of working together in a way and kind of sharing each other's stuff, it's only good because you'll grab people that might not know about your show and then they learn new things about your show and then your audience um, gets bigger and bigger because more people might know about it because they might be advertising somewhere else about their show and the more people you're getting linked into the, this kind of world it's it's better i think it is very much a community uh, and you know it we haven't done it in the uk because these are all very new so we haven't had a chance to mention them but we we talk about some um, podcasts over the water in the states and canada on, on a really fair fairly regular basis yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and i even did a blog about um my top eight 
hunting uh, podcasts for 2017. You can check it out online. Um, and, you know, some of them are the, the, the top ones, the ones you would expect to be there. Joe Rogan, I mean, he is the... He's not, he's not just a hunting podcast, but no, he does. He is a hunter, actually. Yeah. Uh, but, but, I mean, he is probably the top 1% of podcasts on the planet he's, for download. It's crazy. Um, you're talking each episode, I think, when it comes out in the first week has three or four million downloads, which no other... I think there's one other podcast that's just similar to his, and that's a history podcast. Yeah. Uh, he, I mean, he does like three or four a week. Well, he's on show like four, five hundred now? Uh, oh, no, I think more. Is it more than uh, that? I think he's way when more. When I yeah. first started listening to him, I was 300-ish that he was on. It's just crazy, and he has... He has a studio. Yeah. It's got about his six, six camera angles. <laughs> it's uh, no joke. His studio, if you've ever had a chance to look at it, and I, I, I say this with a word of caution, if you are, uh, have sensitive ears and you don't like swearing, do or not go and young, listen. Young or you're child, you're young. Below, uh, probably 16. 15 or 16. Yeah. Don't go and listen to the Joe Rogan podcast because there's a lot of swearing and there's no holds barred on the topics of conversation. Uh, in fact, I saw a meme the other day <laughs> and... Uh, uh, if people don't know what a meme is, it's just a, a picture with some I think writing on most it. Most of the youngsters shit. <laughs> most of the youngsters shit. Uh, but, for example, our, our dad listens to the show. I don't know. If, you know what? I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he would know what a meme is. Yeah. Maybe. Do, do you want to carry on explaining what yeah. it is, just in case? Anyway, there was a picture, and it was a picture of a classroom saying, um, like, in the 90s or something, this is how we used to like learn. And it was a picture of a teacher in the front. Of the class, you know, with some English on the the drawing board, and it, and it says 2017, how we learn now, and it was just a picture of the Joe Rogan podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though, because his variety of topics is just. Sta- I don't know how that man manages to get his into his brain so much information on such a variety. If you're into mixed martial arts and UFC, he's got that down. If you're into hunting, he's got that down. Uh, I think it's. I think a lot. Of, uh, he's he's all. He's a very smart man, but also it's his guests. Yeah. Well, like, he he'll learn a lot from. Yeah, his guests. exactly. Yeah. He'll learn a lot from his guests. So yeah, I don't. Yeah, we we kind of got sidetracked there. Sorry. Um, yeah. Didn't mean to. I, I meant to end the show five <laughs> minutes ago. Uh, there's a lot of other great podcasts out there. Uh, go listen to the Joe Rogan one if you don't know them and you're not too sensitive. Yeah. Um, and that's it from us. You're going to be hearing from us in two weeks time I'm not quite sure who the guest is going to be yet we haven't quite worked that out no. uh, but we will we promise to bring you something don't forget that this podcast is supported by the Scottish Association of Country Sports